Hey everybody, this is Ray Telsh, and this is episode 43 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everybody is doing well out there. Thank you for bearing with me over the erratic release schedule over the last little while. Hopefully things will be back to normal, and in fact I'm hoping that I'll get the podcast back to being released on Wednesdays soon. I've got some big changes going on in my life, but I'm not going to talk about those here because we've got a really long episode this week. It's a great conversation, but it ran a little longer. I try to keep these to an hour, uh, but we had a disconnection problem at one point during the recording. You won't be able to tell where it is because it pieced together pretty seamlessly, but that messed up the clock and I wasn't really paying attention to the clock as much. And my hope was to fix it in editing, but the truth is the conversation is so interesting and most of it builds on stuff that's said that trying to find a segment that I could just pull out or a couple of segments that I could pull out uh, proved very challenging. So this one's a little longer than I normally like, but it's well worth it. Uh, This week, the movie is Batman Returns from 1992. This is the second of the Tim Burton Batman movies, and those collected together with the the other two kind of make up what's known as the Batman anthology. And I found it really interesting that we started with Batman Returns instead of Tim Burton's Batman. But our guest this week, Joe McDonald, wanted to talk about Batman Returns, and who was I to turn him down? As I've said many times, the guest picks the movie, the host keeps his mouth shut. So this is a great episode, really had a great time sitting down with somebody kind of going back to the roots of the show that I did not know prior to recording and getting to know him a little bit and having a great conversation about a great movie. So here we go with Batman Returns from 1992. So I really don't know anything about you. So tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm uh, 38. And I am married. I have three small children and two stepsons. I work as a produce and uh, restaurant goods delivery man. So it is a very basic job. I started a podcast a couple months ago with actually just some guys I met online. And we mainly talk about sports, but we're trying to get into other stuff. And I have been incredibly lucky to meet some awesome people. Like I just kind of stumbled into that podcast group. Then I was like, you know what? It's like, I want, because I don't know if, uh, how far you into uh, movies and all that. Obviously a lot, but um, there's a website called The Ringer from Bill yeah. Simmons. And okay, The Rewatchables. Yeah. And I'm, at, I'm in the Facebook group and I've been in there a while and I post stuff and all that. And like, I always worry. And I follow a lot of The Ringer stuff. That's actually how I met the guys that I'm plotting with. And I'm always wary of like posting stuff like, hey, does anybody have a pod or does... Yeah, there's some people that do it. And then finally, I was like, you know what? I love the movie Batman Returns because we got HBO Max and it was on there for one month. It's off now. They left it on for a month, which is so dumb. Like you had the whole Batman catalog and you left on the animated movies like nothing against them. But are you serious? (laughs) And so they took them off. And I'm like, does anybody have a movie podcast where they've talked about this movie? And then um, like whenever your friend tagged you. And then you invited me. I'm like, are you serious? Like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I was just looking to listen to something, not like necessarily be a part of something. But it's like, 
Of course, I love this movie. I, you want me to talk about it for a while? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little disappointed with HBO Max, uh, which I've talked <sighs> about on the podcast before, and their choice to remove the the Batman anthology, as I guess it's kind of referred to, the the Burton and Schumacher <sighs> films, and replace them with the Superman films. It's like you advertise that you have a DC section. Shouldn't these all be on there all the time? It would be like Disney going, well, we're only going to have the Little Mermaid on for two months and then we're going to pull it off. But but it'll be back eventually. No, give it to me. That's listen, I I completely agree with you. And like when I saw there's a DC section, like I'm not I'm not a comic book person. So like when people complain about, oh, this is an original to the comics or whatever that you can talk to somebody else about that stuff. I do not like that does not get me at all. And when I saw these movies when I was younger, I was just like, wow, like this is amazing. And this is how I always compare Batman movies is like to these. And, and then, you know, HBO max. And it's like, well, we're going to try it out for a week. And it's like, it has all the Batmans. Like, are you serious? Like, of course I'm going to watch them. So we watch them with the kids and all that stuff. And then I download it so I can have it anytime. And then it says, expires like july 1st i'm like what are you talking about and then i go online and i read and it's like yeah it's leaving after a month and it's like what no those are kind of the ones i want to watch right and and my disappointment (laughs) with their dc section is you know where's the other dc stuff like they had these batman movies but where are the chris nolan batman movies and where's batman the animated series where's batman beyond where's you know they they have decades of other dc superhero stuff that they're not giving us and i guess what we're supposed to assume at this point is it will come and go you know it'll be like a rotating catalog well i don't want a rotating catalog i want you know i want what you've got give me your library exactly that was the thing when we got disney plus when it came out because we have kids and of course with everything and the kids not being in school we've been really lucky to have everything but like when Disney Plus came out, like I love the sound of music. There's a movie I could talk about. I love the sound of music. I have and... never seen the sound of music, and the impression oh. I've gotten from two different podcasts I've listened to is that it's a poor Mary Poppins. Listen, don't those people <laughs> just don't don't even get me started because I'm gonna I'm gonna flip. That's insane. It is totally different, even though it is Julie Andrews in back to back years. Imagine that as your first two movies, uh, Mary Poppins, and then the sound of music pretty impressive yeah um no it is oh god i'm like so angry i just want i'm gonna turn into the (laughs) penguin soon i'm so mad uh no it's it it is based on a true story so like 40 percent of it is true the songs are incredible she is amazing it's it's so good but i watched it when i was a kid it's one of the like that and et are like my first movie memories so like gotcha. those movies will always hold a special place in my heart and don't even if you know anybody who hates ET just have them block me on every social media because I will drive to their house and beat them because there's no ET slander in my household. One of the podcasts I listened to just did uh, ET as a bad movie choice on their uh, podcast. <laughs> do not tell me the podcast name and do not tell me the person's name. Oh, it's terrible. So you've mentioned kids a couple of times. Uh, I'm certainly not going to ask you to out them, but can be an age range because you said you have a couple of kids your own and a couple oh, of sta- I, step step kids. Well, my 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 kids that my wife and I have are nine, seven, and six. Two boys and then a young daughter, and then my stepsons are older. My wife's a little bit older than I am. Uh, they are 24 and 21. 
So, so did you show the younger kids these Batman movies or Yes. Really? Okay, yes. interesting. Yes. Um we watched the original Batman, which I could again talk about that movie forever. And there's something funny. How old are you? I'm I'm in my mid forties. Okay. Okay. So we're close to the age. When you were younger and you went to a friend's house, you knew if they were cool or not if they had the Batman movie because it had the awesome logo on the VHS case. Right. So like when you were looking for movies, you were specifically looking for like the Batman symbol. And if you saw it, you were like, hell yeah, this is a guy I could get along with, or this is a kid I could get along with. And my kids are the same way. When they, when they saw the logo, they were like, that's Batman. Like they were just entranced. That's Batman. So like the six year old daughter, she was a little less interested but my sons were definitely into it. Now, she was really entranced by Catwoman because she loves seeing women on screen, um, women who fight, women who dance, anything. Like, I mean, she's just like Catwoman's on the screen and she's just like, that's Catwoman. So what are your other movie tastes? Um, like, are you a, a superhero fan? Do you like other stuff? I started watching the the Marvel movies. Like I saw the original Iron Man. None of these in the theaters. Keep in mind because it's just too expensive to go and stuff. Um, right. <laughs> I can I can say that I'm way behind on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I know more about the movies just because of stuff you read and everything. But if I were to say I love musicals, I I mean I really do. I love musicals. I was never a big Western fan. Just never got into them. War movies. I was hit and miss. I've always liked psychological thrillers. Like when I was younger, I remember seeing, uh, speaking of Michael Keaton, there was a movie called Pacific Heights. Yes. With Matthew Modine and um, Melanie Griffith, I believe. Was that it? Uh, I think so. Yeah. And then uh, Beverly D'Angelo and Michael Keaton. And Michael Keaton's absolutely crazy in that film. Oh, he's it like he he takes like every funny part out of Beetlejuice and makes him like the devil. Like he's just terrible. It's it's oh, and then the cockroaches scene will always stick in my head and stuff. Like it's, yep, that's yeah, the one that, everybody remembers. <laughs> yeah, Matthew Modine looking up through the through the vent and then like them dropping on his face and it's like oh god no 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 don't do that. So, like, I mean, movies like that, I love movies like Seven and stuff like that. So, in that aspect, I'm pretty dark. But, again, like, growing up, my mom was, you know, she was a single mom. She worked. So, I saw a lot of horror movies at a younger age. Like, I love Jaws. It's not really too controversial to say you love Jaws. But, like, I watched it all the time. And I watched Friday the 13th and Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff like that. But I also love, like, stupid comedies, too. I mean, I'm in the generation of, like, I caught Ghostbusters on cable all the time. Caddyshack. Caddyshack 2, as ridiculous as that movie was. <laughs> uh, you know, stuff like that. So I love movies like that. So I am a sucker, and I, I don't know why I put myself through it. I love sad movies. If there is a movie that is sad or, like... um has like a really hard last scene i'm a sucker for it and i will ball the whole time i am not afraid to cry at movies i still cry at et i cannot I'm almost 40 years old i cannot watch et and hear the john williams music come in and see the kids say goodbye to et and not cry my yep. kids know i'll cry yep. <laughs> they, they, they say oh no dad's gonna cry and i can't help it it's yep. a my it's son and I are going to sit down and watch Hamilton this weekend uh, because I, I I introduced him to this the cast album you know a year and a half ago or so 
and right. I've already warned him. I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry a lot <laughs> because I've already watched it once. I know I'm going to cry. So, yeah. Uh, but he, yeah, he knows daddy cries at movies. All right. So the podcast is have not seen this where we talk about movies. We're surprised people have not seen. What are your have not seen this movies? What are movies you haven't seen that people are shocked when they find out about avatar? Ooh. Okay. I've, I've never seen avatar. I have no desire to see avatar, but that's a whole different story. Um, I guess newer movies, anything with the Avengers, like literally anything that's been made after the original Avengers, I haven't seen. So like Infinity War, Endgame, Black Panther, stuff like that. Now and you have I, Disney Plus, so you have access have, to all those. <laughs> well, listen, there's I can watch The Office for the 900th time, or I can watch new movies. So I watch <laughs> The Office for the 900th time. That's what I do. <laughs> I, I um, wouldn't give you too hard a time over Avatar. Um, I mean, I, I love it, but for me, it was part of the experience of seeing it in the theater, seeing it in 3D, and mm-hmm. it being kind of the introduction of this new 3D use. And and so when I watch it now, I my memory is of what it looked like in 3D. And, you know, subsequent viewings, it's not as strong a movie as I would have liked. But I think the technical accomplishment of what it did at the time that it came out is what made it a big deal. And if you don't have that opportunity, then you're kind of missing out on the key thing that made it so impressive to everybody. Oh, absolutely. Trying to think of like some of the biggest movies of all time that I've never seen. I've never seen Chinatown. Okay. Uh, I've never seen like Gone with the Wind. Trying to think, like, I mean, I know there's movies where I tell people I'm always like, "Wow, that's I can't believe you've never seen that." I've never seen Casablanca. Um, I know, right? And I, I'm as I described, I should be suckers for these movies. And a lot of them that you listed are on HBO Max. So <laughs> I know, I know, time, I know. Time it's... to let Dwight and Jim and Pam go and ex- yeah. uh, expand your horizons a little bit. <laughs> they will never ever let go. A quick funny story. My wife and I actually got married on the Maid of the Mist, uh, same as Jim and Pam did. Aww. And uh, she was pregnant at the time, which was not planned, but <laughs> she was <laughs> pregnant at the time. So, and we actually found out later through many rewatches of The Office that we got married on the day, August 11th, that Jim proposed to Pam. So I will always feel like a kinship to The Office. So um, as, as hard it is to let them go and watch these movies, it's going to take a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as you kind of already previewed in some of your comments, we're here today to talk about Batman Returns from 1992. Uh, this was Tim Burton's return to the Batman world. It's the only sequel to one of his movies that he's directed, but it is directed by Tim Burton, written by Daniel Waters, starring Keaton, Danny DeVito, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, and Michael Goff. I've been down here too long. It's time for me to ascend. From the sewers of Gotham, a new villain emerges. You didn't invite me, so I crashed! of Gotham, the perfect enemy comes to life. I am Catwoman. Hear me roar. Yeah. 
only one who can save this city is a creature of the night. So how do you describe this movie to someone who's not seen it? How do you sell someone who hasn't seen Batman Returns on seeing it, especially now that Batman has kind of gone through this transformation of gritty reality through Christopher Nolan's movies? I would say if I were to try and there's a thing that um, people have called us called the elevator pitch, where basically if you're stuck in an elevator with somebody, what do you say in 30 seconds to try and get them to watch this movie? Right. I would I would say that if I'm trying to elevator pitch this movie, it's going to be something along the lines of like you're going to see heroes, villains and everybody in between be at the top of their game and you're going to root and you're going to hate everybody at different points. And it is by my calculation the best superhero villain performances of any movie ever and yes i did say that i haven't seen the new avengers and things of that sort but i will put max shrek the penguin and catwoman up against any villains of all time uh it is incredible interesting okay so what's your history with this movie because i gotta guess you saw this in the theater Believe it or not, I did not. As I said, my mom was a single mom, so I didn't get to go to the theaters as much. A lot of it was VCR releases, cable releases. This was the time of we had like a Showtime video, which was like a generic blockbuster, and we used to go rent movies. I remember, of course, being a huge fan of Batman, and we had it, and we'd rewatch it all the time. So when I heard that this movie was coming out, I was excited. When I saw the trailer, I was even more excited. And when I saw the cover of the movie with the three people, you know, top to bottom, there was no way I was not going to see this movie. So as <laughs> soon as it came out, I absolutely made my mom rent it and watch it. And at some point shortly thereafter, bought it and rewatched it many times. And anytime it was on TV, I rewatched it. So like my love affair for this movie stems from my love of the first. But as soon as I saw it, I was hooked. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the the cover of the DVD case, which essentially was the poster art, because they sold the first movie just on that iconic Batman logo. Like that was it was a black poster with that Batman iconic logo with the yellow filling uh, in. And that that was it. That was their ad campaign. And that thing was everywhere. The poster, the cover of the DVD, (laughs) the cover of the book, you know, what T-shirts, everything. That thing was everywhere. But when this one came out, They really sold it, as you said, on the strength of the three, that it was the bat, the cat, the penguin, and it was the face of Batman and Catwoman and Penguin. To the point that I found it interesting, you mentioned Max Shrek among kind of those best villains, because he's really kind of, at least especially as far as the marketing was concerned, a secondary character, even though he's kind of the impetus of everything that's going on in the film. Oh, he's, I mean, absolutely. You're you're much smarter than I am, so you use word like an impetus, and I'll use a catalyst. (laughs) There's a really funny piece of trivia about this. Max Shrek was actually supposed to be Harvey Dent. Right. So, like, they had to rewrite everything where Harvey Dent was basically going to become Two-Face at the end of the movie. And then there was going to be a third movie and all this other stuff. But the Max Shrek character is so underrated in, like you said, and, and we can, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about, like, our favorite scenes or whatever because this whole movie just makes me tremble but he was so perfect in the way that he played everybody in the movie like he was always he was always two steps ahead of everybody 
but it's like he had a shadow trailing them from behind to make sure they couldn't get away. Like he just always seemed to have everything planned and was so vile in the way that he did things. Oh, I, I particularly love the scene, uh, the the first encounter he has with Penguin, where oh. Penguin is is essentially trying to blackmail him into doing what he wants, <laughs> and he he's pulling out everything, and Max just keeps <sighs> this absolutely stoic look on his face, and it's like, oh, here's you know toxic goo. Oh, that could come from anywhere, you know. Yep. Uh, you know, oh, what about those papers that show that you've done this? Oh, well, if they existed, I'd have them shredded, you know. Mm. And when he pulls them out, little tape and a lot of patience. And and there's still ah. absolutely no sh- change. The only change, which I think is just a brilliant moment of acting, is when he asks about his partner. And there's Fred. just this <laughs> tiny little crack in the facade of calm that Christopher Walken has on his face. It, it's it, it's almost unnoticeable, but yet it's big enough that you do notice. Oh, there's this temporary chink in the armor when the partner is brought up and then it's, and then it's back and he just plays it so cool and collected and it's, and yeah, I mean, he's absolutely despicable. He, he really is. And I will argue that two of the, two of the best scenes in any of the Batman movies. And I include the Nolan Batman movies take place in the underground layer at the zoo, that one where he meets the penguin. And then later on at the very end are just masterclasses and acting from all of them. But one of my favorite parts, and I actually get chills when I see it, is when Max kind of comes to and, and sees everybody, you know, all of the Red Triangle gangs sitting around. And then there's the Penguin. And he goes, he goes, I believe the word you're looking for <laughs> is, ah, and he yells. And it is so, like, I've ne- I remember being really young and seeing it. I was probably, yeah, I was, well, 10. Yeah, I was 10 when I saw it. And I just remember thinking, like, that is not normal. Like whoever this character is before the rest of the movie went on, I just thought that's not how you introduce yourself. And, and like you said, Max is so, he just has this facade at all times. And he was so unsettled by it that he, like you said, I love the part with Fred's hand, you know, hi, I'm Fred's hand, you know, (laughs) that was perfect. But that moment when the penguin kind of quote unquote introduces himself, it's it's great to see Walken react to everything because DeVito was knocking it out of the park. And the fact that, that Walken was able to to keep up with him just, again, shows how incredible this movie is. Yeah, and that that's one of my favorite Penguin lines. The, the, oh, I believe yeah. the word you're looking for is, ah. I mean, and, yeah. De, and DeVito has some great lines in this movie. <sighs> they get cornier as the movie goes on. But, uh, I mean, he has some fantastic lines, like when he's being convinced to to be a politician and he's like, uh, you know, oh, politics is about meeting people, reaching out to people, groping people, you know, and it's it, it, this also we should mention. And this is why I was a little surprised when you said you showed your kids it is this is kind of a horny movie. There's there's a lot oh. of. And it's and not just in the fact that you have Catwoman going around in the kind of this S and M style outfit, but just Penguin is just a very horny character. Like, and I guess that's what you get for living, you know, thirty some years in the sewers uh, without human contact. But still, it just it surprised me. It it is interesting because the Penguin might be the most revolting uh, character in comic book history or in uh, you know superhero lore, especially the way they did DeVito, which is actually, in my opinion, perfect uh, with the hand, you know, the flippers and all that. You never actually see them. He always has the gloves on, things of that sort, you know, the nose, the face, 
they made him very bird like. Uh, yes. So so it is funny that he's just like like you said hypersexualized in that. And Catwoman, there is an interesting part though, and and it's another scene, probably one of my other favorite scenes, is the transition that she goes when you know she's Selena and she tears up her apartment and she's making all the stuff. And then I love that scene. And listen, my favorite shot in the whole movie is where it's it's outside her window and she has knocked out the neon on the signs where it said hello there. And if you look, it says hell here. Right. And it's just this transition, which is a perfect shot and her in the full bodysuit and all that. So part of it is kind of like the way that they designed Batman's costume was always just like it was for protection. It was never to kind of show anything. It was black. It was streamlined. It was just what he wore. With Catwoman, it was almost like another part of her personality. It was a way for her to express herself in not necessarily the way she wanted to be, but a way that she had to. Like she was so repressed. She was so timid. She was so shy. And with the suit, she was just like, this is me. And a great part of that is when she's in the uh, convenience store, when she's in Shrek's store and the, the security guards come up and, you know, they kind of make a comment or whatever. And she goes, oh, you're thinking with the wrong head. Like she understands that even in this, she has to be taken seriously. Like I'm not a toy. I'm a woman. I am, despite how I look, despite what you think, I control what happens. And that's great when you see her with the penguin and how they interact and the way he's always like, you know, oh, come on, now's the time and stuff like this. And it's like, no, 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 she makes the rules. She's the one who controls it. So you do kind of have like where the penguin is hypersexualized and Catwoman is outwardly sexualized, but she is in control at all times. Yeah. All right. Well, before we get too far into the movie, let me go into the critical uh, critical side of things. I always like to pull in a couple of reviews that have some some points that I think have some validity or, or worth talking about. Or we can, of course, just totally disregard them and, and keep talking our own thing. But I like to pull them in. Uh, as always, I try to bring in a Roger Ebert quote. And in this case, he provides the negative review, which really surprised me. But he wrote, I always thought it would be fun to be Batman. The movie believes it is more of a curse, that Batman is not a crime-fighting superhero, but a reclusive neurotic who feels he has to prove himself to a society he does not really inhabit. All of Tim Burton's films are about the characters whose strange qualities place them outside the mainstream and who live in worlds that owe everything to art direction and set design. Looking at these movies is a pleasure. They are not ordinary or boring. Perhaps I would have enjoyed Batman more if the movie had been about someone else. Perhaps one of those Marvel superheroes who frankly concede their personal inadequacies. I can admire the movie on many levels, but I cannot accept it as Batman. And I was disappointed that the disjointed plot advanced so unsteadily, depriving us of the luxury of really caring about the outcome. Now, I, I did pull in the last paragraph as a qualifier here because he is our negative review. But he wrote, I give the movie a negative review, and yet I don't think it's a bad movie. It's more of a misguided one made with great creativity, but denying us what we more or less deserve from a Batman story. Looking back over both films, I think Burton has a vision here and is trying to shape it to the material, but it just won't fit. No matter how hard you try, superheroes and film noir don't go together. The very essence of noir is that there are no more heroes. I had a feeling by the end of this film that Batman was beginning to get the idea. And I need to throw in, I love the fact that he kind of threw a ball at the Marvel superheroes who concede their personal inadequacies, having no clue that 20 years later, Marvel would be kind of king of the heap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At this time, I, I, I know there were some some uh, Marvel movies being made, but they were definitely not successful. Oh, not anywhere close to the, yeah, they're not anywhere close to the 
kind of the guts of DC to to do these because the Batman movie in 89 is completely different than the the series from you know 66 and the oh, movies yeah. and stuff like that. So, <laughs> I mean, not only not only were they putting these this movie out there and these movies out there, like they were going to a new generation of people who really hadn't seen Batman portrayed like this if you weren't a comic book fan. So they definitely, you know, they talk about, oh, when they did Iron Man, they really took a stab in the dark. Like, eh, go back. DC's done that before. As, as bad as their <laughs> movies are now, they've, they've done this before. They were kind of first to the game. <laughs> All right. On the flip side, this is a first for the podcast. I, I finally get to do this. But the positive review comes from Ebert's partner and rival in Chicago, Gene Siskel, writing for the Chicago Tribune. And Siskel writes, this time the richness of the Batman movie is not in its production design. Indeed, designer Bo Welsh is a toy shop window decorator compared with the late great Anton First, but rather in Burton's and screenwriter Daniel Waters' Freudian view of adult human behavior. If all this makes Batman Returns seem overly serious, well, that's an overstatement. But it should be a pleasure for non-adolescents to encounter a comic book action picture in which the characters are more important than their gadgets. In other words, I liked Batman Returns because I found myself thinking more about Bruce Wayne than the Batmobile, more about the Penguin's childhood than his aerodynamic umbrella. So it, it almost feels like Ebert felt like it was all style and no substance, and Siskel felt like there was substance that he was focused on rather than the style. I agree and see points of both of them. I do agree with Gene Siskel because I'm the one who picked this movie, so obviously I love it. <laughs> uh, so I'm not going to side with Ebert. I mean, Ebert has a point, but there's also limitations. The first movie kind of overshadows the second movie in the way that it's built up because the Joker character was such a big part of the story that you never really got to see much of the city and kind of anything outside of their relationship and their dynamic between Batman and, and the Joker. Whereas, and I think in Batman Returns, you do focus on the more of the city at the whole and, and some of the secondary characters, including the villains, and by secondary, I mean anybody other than Batman, because that's obviously the primary. But you do get into this. You get to see, boy, how really evil and how everything is Max Shrek. Like, why does Selina need to take this step? And why does Oswald feel this need to be so hateful to his city that, you know, he was a part of? And it does go into that a little bit more. So I do like going back and watching the movie, especially as an adult. And seeing how what drives the characters, because in the first one, they tell you his parents were killed and this is why Batman's Batman. And they do a really good job in a short period of time of, of kind of telling you Max Shrek is just a ruthless businessman who will do anything and hurt anybody to further his agenda. And Selena Kyle wants to fit in, but also be noticed and respected. And the Penguin wants to destroy everything that ever put him in the position he's in. And whether that's true or not, you know, like the firstborn sons of Gotham and all that, it's not their fault, but they should be punished. So I really do like the, the in-depth that they went into this in, a, in, in one movie. Yeah, and I agree with Siskel's comment about the, the Freudian view of mankind. One of the things that this movie does that I almost wish it did more of but it subtly does is it does start to explore that duality of being a superhero, that the difference between uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman, the difference between Selena Kyle and Catwoman. And it, it doesn't explore it in like, oh, what's Bruce Wayne's life like? But it explores it in kind of a which is the real persona. 
And to me, that's displayed in, when they go to the Christmas party, you know, Shrek's oh. Christmas ball. And everybody there is in a costume mm-hmm. except for Bruce and Selena, because those are their costumes, because who they are at heart is Batman and Catwoman. And that's that's something that really bothered me with the Nolan films, especially the third one, is that he never got that the the moment Bruce Wayne's parents were killed and he set out on this course, Bruce Wayne became the costume. Batman yeah. is who he is inside. And that's something that I feel like the comics have explored for years and the animated series explored for years and Nolan somehow missed. And yet here's Burton getting it right in 1992. I couldn't agree more. I I love the Nolan movies. Don't get me wrong. And the Burton movies to me are are just on par with those. Just the way that they were done with the set pieces. I mean, people can say, "Oh, it looks so." Well, that's going back, you know, now almost thirty years. So at the time, it looks great. I think visually, the movie is fantastic because it's still very dark. But then they do incorporate kind of the with the Red Triangle Gang and it being around Christmas, which was a very smart decision, by the way, to plan it around Christmas because there is a a kind of subtlety to the whole being depressed around the holidays. Mm-hmm. So th- there's a line where the penguin says, like, how do I know you're just not some dame who's, you know, kind of a screw loose or whatever. And if you think about it, like, it kind of makes sense that there's this woman whose boyfriend breaks up with her around the Christmas holiday who kind of loses it. But that's not the reason. If this were a romantic comedy, then she falls in love with Bruce Wayne because she's depressed around the holidays. But it's kind of a culmination of everything snapping of like it doesn't matter what's going on. The season or the time of season is non-consequential. Like it doesn't really matter. But when you go back and look at it, you're like, oh, yeah, it is. And and they kind of even make references to it and stuff like that. So I think that's really smart of Burton. And I know sometimes female characters in superhero movies get criticized for not having depth or whatever. I think Selena Kyle slash Catwoman is done so, so well. It's so good. I'm I'm not going to go into like a feminism rant because I'm not qualified to talk about that, <laughs> but I, I do. But there is something amazing about her character and I think it has aged so well. Oh yeah. And I, I specifically was, when I was making my notes, rewatching this for the podcast, when she comes back to Shrek's office and she has the scene about, you know, the nun who was throwing up, but, and somebody <laughs> said it was because she was pregnant. And then I remember the time that I didn't wear underpants to school in the name of the boy, the way she does that scene is just beautiful acting. Like it totally is establishing who Selena Kyle is at her core. And then you get another glimpse in that later on in that, that masquerade scene that I was talking about Mm -hmm. where she came there, you know, Bruce came there to see her. And if she had come there to see Bruce, that would be a romantic comedy. She didn't come to see Bruce. She came to see Max, you know, and, and the way she breaks down telling him that. And then when they realize each other's identities, the, 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 that is going on in that scene in both of those scenes just put Michelle Pfeiffer such a step ahead of where this kind of movie was especially at the time but in some degree even where it is now oh absolutely she she was I mean a little bit of history Annette Benning was the original choice to play Catwoman right when she when she got the role she found out she was pregnant and she had to drop out and then Michelle Pfeiffer replaced her. So, I mean, talk about a big what if, if, if it had been Annette Benning, especially young, kind of unknown Annette Benning. Pfeiffer is incredible in this movie. And really, there are three incarnations of Selena Kyle. There is pre-Max throwing her out the window. 
And then there's Catwoman. And then there's those couple scenes like you talk about. There's the scene where she comes in and it's almost like she's drunk. Like she almost has like a stagger to her. Like she's had one too many cocktails. She's not slurring her speech, but just kind of the freedom that she has. And and you were kind of talking about how uh, Walken, when he was doing the whole Penguin thing, when they were you know introduced to each other basically, and the Penguin is kind of outing all of Max's secrets, and he's unsettled there for a second. Walken does a great job of Selena, Selena, Selena. Like he doesn't know what to do because right. this is not Selena Kyle. This is not the timid kind of bumbling assistant. This is not the scaredy cat no pun intended, that he pushed out the window. This is a completely different person. And there's just enough of her in that. Like, she's not Catwoman, but she's not Selena. And there's that great moment whenever she is taking, you know, Bruce to the elevator, and they're kind of flirting back and forth. And he's like, Which I'm I leaving. love. And, Which and I love that moment. <laughs> her, her banter, I mean, his banter too, but their banter is so good because that's his first introduction to her other than, you know, saving her before. And it's so good. Like, she's so interested in him and he's so interested in her, but there's still kind of like a, a standoffishness by both of them. Well, and one of the things so good, (laughs) one of the things I absolutely love that I just came to appreciate this time through uh, on the the note of Catwoman is that the scene where Selena Kyle comes home and goes through her routine and, you know, honey, I'm home. Oh, I forgot. I'm not married. And she feeds Uh the cats and she plays the message and she gets the message from herself telling her she has to go back to the office. But, you know, Mm -hmm. she's had the message from the perfume company and from her mother and that kind of stuff. And it's like and from the boyfriend who who broke up with her who's tim burton by the way yeah Um, yeah who's tim burton oh that's such a yeah (laughs) but that scene sets up it's so important in showing her transformation and yet it's so subtly done to show you who the character is so that you see who she becomes later on and it's like it's not done heavy-handed it's just done as this is a day in the life of selena kyle but you're going to appreciate it so much more in a few minutes when you see her come home the second time and i just i loved that this time through more than any other time I've watched it. There's a great moment too, where her breakdown, like she comes home and she does the, hi honey, I'm home. And like, she does the whole routine again, but with like just this almost like zombie quality. And, you know, she pours the milk out and she does everything. And it's when she hears the message and it says Shrek department store. And she hears that name. And that's the moment. Like, that's the breaking point right there. That's the. It's not some man who dumped her. It's not even that she got thrown out of the. It's hearing that name and everything after that moment changes. And that's that's a really good moment to me in the movie because it would be interesting to see if you could like talk to Tim Burton for twenty five years and not know everything. But if that was always a decision. If that was the moment that she broke, because she doesn't come home and trash her house. I mean, she pours the milk out and stuff, but like it's that moment that she finally decides or something snaps and then she becomes Catwoman. It, yeah. It's just such a, a good choice in the movie. Yeah. Well, and I, I love, you know, that we get her origin, her transformation 
we get Penguin's origin of sorts. You know, we as an audience see it in the opening of the movie, but then other than just being talked about a little bit, it's not explored. We don't see his time with, you know, the Red Triangle gang. We just Mm -hmm. see a a reference to it. You know, so it's this nice mix of you have the origin story we see, the origin story we kind of hear about, and then, of course, with Max, Max Shrek, he's just there. There's no origin yeah. story for Shrek because he's just a, an asshole. So, you know, <laughs> it. but but it's a, this nice mix of they didn't have to do an origin story for all the villains. And, of course, we don't need to spend any time on Batman's origin story, making mm-hmm. this the only Batman movie not to spend time on that, because the next two movies still give us his origins in some fashion as if the other movies never existed. But I almost wonder if this set up the model of too many villains, because I feel like they they balance Catwoman and Penguin and Shrek just right. But it becomes a problem for a lot of future movies, especially, I think, of like the Spider-Man saga where they had, you know, Green Goblin in the first movie and Doc Ock in the second movie. And then the third one, they bring in multiple villains and they can't balance them. And it becomes a problem to the movie. This, like a lot of movies in the history of movies, it does something really well. And other movies either fail or succeed trying to replicate it. And more than anything, I want to credit casting and writing. Because like you said, the little bit of origin stories, it leaves just enough. If this movie were to come out now, then we have to have origin movies about Catwoman and Max Shrek and everything. And I don't want that. I want just enough in the movie to understand where they're all coming from. Because the other thing this does, it tells you who everybody is. Like... Max is the villain. Right. Penguin Penguin is bad. Like he has ill intentions and Catwoman is perplexed. Like she saves the woman, but then she chastises the woman for being who she was at the beginning of the movie. Like oh, you walk and you expect Batman to save you and things of this sort. Like you know who these people are. As complicated as they can be, the movie does a fantastic job of telling you who they are. And I agree, like, Spider-Man has been really bad at that. And sometimes there's just too many cooks in the kitchen. But with this, they found just the right recipe for everybody to be able to perform, again, at the highest levels and not have it come off as, like, I don't know if hokey is the right word or whatever. Like, they all work together and go against each other at different times. Like, obviously, the Penguin and Catwoman team up, but then they go against each other. And Shrek and the Penguin team up but then go against each other. And obviously Shrek and Catwoman go against each other. Like there's this great thing where even if you know who they are, there's alliances and backstabbing and everything else. Like it's so good. I, I feel like this movie now would be like three hours long. It would be a Nolan movie. It would just be <laughs> so long, but they do such a good job of fitting the story in, in the time that they have. Well, and maybe I shouldn't have jumped ahead to the Spider-Man trilogy because I even think this series gets it wrong after this point, that you get this great balance between Catwoman and Penguin and Shrek, and then the next movie you've got Two-Face and Riddler, and it doesn't work. And then the film after that, you've got Poison Ivy and Freeze, and it doesn't work. And it's almost uh, because they they balance them well, but I think it's kind of what you're, you're talking about is there's this synergy between Catwoman and Penguin and Shrek. And that synergy doesn't exist in the future chapters in the same way. I don't know if it really exists in any movie after this. Yeah. And and there, there's, I mean, people can, you know, reply or, or call me out or whatever. But any movie that I've watched after this, people don't interact. Characters don't interact like this. 
there there is something that even when they meet each other, they kind of know who they are. Like Catwoman knows who the penguin is. Like he's a dirty, filthy, gross, disgusting creature. And she doesn't pretend that he's anything else. And like the penguin knows exactly who Max is because he knows all of his secrets. You know, you flush it, I flaunt it. So there is something great in the way they react. And no other movie, especially with the villains, does this. I mean, you could argue that maybe the only movie that I've seen personally that does this so well is the original Avengers movie, but on the opposite side. Right. Is where they have this kind of tugging and pulling, and then they all have to kind of work together, and people have to make sacrifices and all this. And I, again, casting is a big part of it, and, and obviously writing is a huge part, but sometimes you just have to see it on the screen. I just don't think there's a moment in this movie where any of those characters are on the screen where you're walking away. Like, yeah. I just... To me, it's not that like, you know, you can see a movie you're like, oh, OK, this part's coming up. I can run to the bathroom real quick or whatever. There's not a moment in this movie that I want to miss when I watch it. Yeah. And, and I, I think oddly, storytellers have figured out how to do that with heroes. So that's why it works for Avengers, as you said. And it does. It works for Avengers. It works for Civil War. It works for the other Avengers movies. Hell, it the the coming together of the heroes wasn't even the problem with Justice League. They yeah. don't know how to balance the villainy. And if they want to throw more than one villain in, then that's where it seems to be a problem. And yet it's something that Batman Returns does beautifully. A movie that kind of reminded me of this, and I saw it recently, I did see Captain Marvel, which I really, really liked. Which is the one movie of the MCU I have not seen yet. Okay, I won't spoil it. I was <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was kind of disappointed in the way they took the villains. And it, again, it was like you have this great character and this great movie and all these like and, and I mean there are twists and turns as there are with any Marvel movie or any movie nowadays. But like again, I just think when you write female characters, especially, it's really hard. And there's one other thing about this movie and new comic book hero movies and all this stuff. The physicality of all these people does not matter. You don't have to have ripped Robert Downey Jr. or whatever Hemsworth. You don't have to have like even Michelle Pfeiffer in the cat suit, it's more about just the the look than it is anything else. And there's just something about you can be a villain or you can even be a hero and you don't have to be the most imposing or intimidating figure. It's more mental than anything. And I think that's what this movie does better than any other movie. And the original Batman started with it and then they just took it to another level. Because well, the I think Joker it's really interesting that you say that, though, because one of the changes they made for the bat suit between the first movie and this one is it doesn't have those sculpted muscles on it the way it did in the first Batman movie. That's something they they shied away from. They just kind of went, well, he has armor. That makes more sense. We don't need him to look ripped. Exactly. And and it, it's hard to notice the difference between the first and the second unless you're looking for it. But us being older and seeing this movie multiple times over the years, it's something we pick up on. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but you're right though. Like, and Batman is, is strong enough that he can, can hold his own, but he's not invincible. You know, the end of the original Batman, he's beat up when the, you know, when the glider crashes and in this one, like he's beat up, like there is a, a great aspect of like the hero, even though he might win, he's going to suffer, which is really, really good. Like they're not, and not suffer at the hands of some mythical, you know, alien, but like you can physically be beat up if you fall down, 
you're going to get hurt. If there's explosions, you're going to get hurt. And I think these movies, the first two, really do a good job at that. And Keaton does that perfect, too. He just kind of has this anguished look on his face. And that is perfect at the in the final, not the final scene, but the, the scene where Shrek and Catwoman, and he kind of reveals, himself, well, he does reveal himself to be Bruce Wayne. And I'm going to aim that comment back at the Ebert review where he made the comment about film noir and superheroes don't exist because the idea of noir is there are no more heroes. No, in noir, the heroes do get beaten pretty badly. And I think that's something they took very well from noir and established here. Yeah, I, I when you read that review, because I had never seen that review, I kind of thought, what movie did he watch? Like, I'm not, a, I'm not a film historian. I'm not a film buff. But like reading that, I'm like, did you not watch the same movie? Like, did you get a different cut? <laughs> did you get a cut of like Batman Forever before it was made or something? Like, it, it just, yeah, there was parts of his review that didn't make sense. And it was actually really funny to hear uh, Gene Siskel pretty much just, I don't want to say put him in his place, but kind of go in the opposite direction. And be like, yeah, Raj, you're wrong. You know, <laughs> it was and speaking of old Saturday Night Live. It was kind of like the uh, Jane, you ignorant slut. It's almost like he just went, Roger, you ignorant slut. Like and then just completely just dismantled his talking points. <laughs> Guns, knives, poison, bombs. Time and again, assassins have sought to change the course of history through one single, terrible act. I'm Neil Cooper, the host of Assassinations Podcast. Join me each week as I explore the darker side of history. New episodes are released every Monday and are available on iTunes and our website, Assassinations Podcast. Now, I do have to say, you know, I have rewatched, I didn't rewatch it this week in preparation of the podcast, but I have watched Batman within the last few years. Uh, and I think Batman Returns holds up tremendously better over time especially visual effects wise than the original Batman does the original Batman while, while I love it and I, I it still holds a great place in my heart. I mean, I still remember seeing it in the theater and I, I, I personally like Nicholson's take on the Joker. I like mm -hmm. that there's a variety of jokers out there. I think his is good for a gangster Joker, which is one incarnation of the character. But this movie, aside from like two moments I think the visual effects still hold up pretty well. And a lot of they that do. is because a lot of what they did, they did practically. So you don't have as much of those matte paintings that don't hold up as well. Like the original Batman, you don't have CG because it was just coming into fruition. In fact, the bats in this movie are CG, but you know, CG doesn't really become in the spotlight until the next year with Jurassic park. So, yeah. so much of it was done practically that it holds up so well that I still think, especially out of the the Schumacher Burton films, that this is the highlight of those. I absolutely agree, and also it's funny because they did this. If I'm not mistaken, they filmed this on the Warner Brothers lot, and like half of the movie lot was taken up by the sets from this movie. Yes. So they definitely wanted, and that's something that's really interesting. And Nolan did a good job of is they put Batman and they put Bruce Wayne in the city. Yes. It's not a soundstage. It's not a set like. When they're on the buildings, when they're in front of the buildings, one of my favorite uh, just kind of like little five-second snippets is when she's doing the backflips out of the department store. And then there's 
the Batman and Penguin who have just met really for the first time, which that's another great exchange. Like, you know, mayor things and they do the, you know, things change. Like, that's a great scene, too. And then but, she does like the 20 flips and comes up and takes and a couple of up, breaths. And then she just goes, <laughs> meow. And then it blows up. But like yes. you see that there are physical actors at that explosion. Like you kind of miss that in a lot of movies, especially now with so much CGI. But like you said, Spielberg took it into a whole other direction a year later. So this was and maybe that's part of the fun of it, the nostalgia of like seeing them interact. And when they're driving through the streets, they're driving through blocks and blocks and blocks. Right. It's you know, that that's kind of the fun part of it. And in the later movies, you definitely lose that aspect of like everything's just a backdrop. You know, and to me, it was so much more encompassing of the city and seeing the giant Christmas tree and seeing the giant present come with the people popping out like there is a fun aspect to it. And I think they interact with everything, you know, on the rooftops, in the rooms, even the stuff like the penguin climbing the stairs, you know, the spiral staircase or coming down the spiral staircase. There's something kind of really cool about that that you miss in movies now. Now everybody just gets to everywhere in a hurry. And in this movie, <laughs> you kind of see the penguin, like you mentioned with the umbrella where he's able to, you know, it does all these special things. But when he flies up, you're seeing him rise up and then go to the rooftops. He doesn't end up back in his lair somewhere. You see him point to point to point. And there's really something cool about watching that now compared to all the movies that come out now. Well, yeah. And yet there's still some really cartoonish silly things about this movie that definitely kind of <laughs> lay the foundation for the next movie like i mean like let's be honest the umbrella is kind of stupid um i mean it's very cartoonish <sighs> it's i, I mean so... I, I i enjoy it and it's well done but the i mean the circus gang the gang with a theme for like how they're done up is is very cartoonish and and, and i'm not saying i don't enjoy them but what i'm saying is you know there there are just the, the hijacking the Batmobile scene where Penguin is on the little uh, oh, toy fantastic. version of it. But it's but it's cartoonish. So I can almost see where they then take the direction of the, the remaining films in this franchise be, before it's dead by, you know, George Clooney's hand. Um, <laughs> th that's not fair. It is not George Clooney's fault that Batman <laughs> and Robin is a terrible movie. He's not. He uh, doesn't help it, but it's not he his doesn't fault. Help. <laughs> I want to push back a little bit on that. Sure. First off, the penguin, I believe, is meant to be fairly immature. He had to grow up, not to quote any, but with a hard knock life. Like he was basically raised by these circus freaks who were criminals and things of this sort. So his emotional maturity is very young. He almost acts like a teenager, the over hypersexualized, the just bouts of violence when and I love the scene when he's in the like you said, kind of the uh, the uh, department store quarter ride mobile where he's you know the batmobile and he's shaking around and his visceral reaction to it not working anymore it's like a kid throwing a tantrum so i kind of do like those parts it was almost a throwback to the colorful you know batman and robin where you know their suits were definitely more colorful and all that, but it had a darker tone i kind of like the fact that when the joker let me think about it though like if you look at the original movie the joker what were his colors it was like purple. It was purple all that. Orange, all, yeah. all the guys wore purple jackets. All the guys. Like there still was kind of this aspect of you knew who the bad guys were because they all kind of looked alike. You know, Jack's gang was all the same. They all wore the black hats. They all wore sunglasses. They all wore the purple and black jackets. In this one, they do take it to a hokey level. But in the same fact, it's a way to 
in my opinion, it's a way to throw people off. Because think about it. When they first show up, they're in the big giant Christmas present and they all pop out. And then people are scared because it blows up. And then you see these circus people, but they're not the circus people that like if there was any other time of year and these they aren't came the clowns through, you're oh, looking for. These aren't the clowns. Oh, that's so good. That's such a great <laughs> line. I wish I was that smart. But it is. Like it it's when the guy's holding Selena Kyle and he has his face done up. If you were just to walk by him, if they were just to move the camera past him, he's just a clown. But up close, it's like, no, this is a sinister dude. Like he's going to taser this woman. So I do kind of like that. And not everything in the movie had to be dark, even though I love the darkness of the movie, the way it was shot, the characters, okay, so, everything about so it. So that's that sets up the question perfectly. A quick note: Doug Jones, who goes on to you know be in The Shape of Water and you know Hellboy and that kind of stuff, was one of those clowns. That was one of his first film roles. But the, but that sets up the qu- question perfectly because on one side you've got Danny DeVito in this cartoony as you said, chain store, quarter slot, you know, vehicle, throwing a temper tantrum. On the other side, you've got his drool, this black ooze coming out of his mouth when he talks. So there was a mix of reactions when this came out, some saying that it took Batman and made it darker, and some saying that it took Batman and made it lighter. Which side do you fall on? I am in the camp that it made Batman who he was supposed to be, which I guess was darker, because all of these heroes or superheroes or antiheroes or whatever you want to say all have difficult, you know, usually stories, origin stories. You know, Superman was abandoned and, you know, Batman was orphaned and stuff like this. Batman is not supposed to be a character of light. Right. Like he's not he's not the beacon of Superman. It, it really is a dichotomy between, you know, the yin and the yang, the lightness and the darkness. And I was actually happy going back and watching it and see how dark the movie is at times because the Batman movies, in my opinion, are supposed to be dark. They are supposed to be about pain and loss and unsuredness of who you are or what you're Well, it's a character born out of the murder of his parents in front of him when he's a kid. Yeah. How do you get light out of that? Yeah. So, like, when people say, oh, they made it lighter. No, they didn't. I mean, yeah, the Red Triangle gang. Okay, so for what? Nine minutes of the movie, it's like hokey, you know, where he's fighting the strong man and there's the dog lady and there's all this stuff. But like, even with them, they put a bomb in his car. The strong man has dynamite strapped to him. Like, these are still evil people just because they're under the guise of some, you know, kind of, you know, makeup and costumes and everything else. They're still evil. And the movie doesn't let you forget that. There's the only time in the movie where any of them shows any contrition is where the big guy, the big clown down below, when when he's telling his plans about going and uh, kidnapping all the firstborn sons of Gotham, and he says, uh, Penguin, isn't that a little... And no, then the penguin it's a grabs lot. The it's a lot. <laughs> oh, and I have to push back on the umbrella. The umbrellas are fantastic. And let me tell you why. Because it sets up one of the funniest moments in any Batman movie. It is at the very oh, end yes. when he pulls out the when he's and it's the wrong one. That is because what's he pulled out? He pulled out the spinning. You know, oh, is that supposed to make me? Is that supposed to um, you know put me in a trance or whatever? And he pulls out the one where he's going to lead the kitties into the sludge. And he right. pulls out the one that's a gun. And he pulls out the one where it flies. So like you know, he has all these. So, like, when he sees 
the people standing there and he pulls it out and he's trying to pull the gun, obviously, and he pulls the wrong one. Like, yeah, he deserves that. Like, he, he, he should get the chance to, you know, kill somebody or whatever. So that to me is one of the other. And I will say this. It is a funny movie at times. It there is. is some great, great humor in this movie. One of them being a throwback, one of the few throwbacks to the original movie of where he's getting ready to go down to the Batcave and it's after uh, the whole uh, car, you know, they tried to blow it up and stuff in the Batmobile and it's all damaged and Alfred's telling him he just can't take it to a mechanic and, you know, about security, he goes, security. He goes, who's the one who let Vicky Vale in the Batcave? He goes, you know, I'm done their work and I go, oh, hey, Vic. Like, <laughs> there's just this kind of really... <laughs> Really funny moment of Keith, and he was which, perfectly by the way, cast in the role. Which, by the way, Michael Goff as Alfred is still because Alfred Alfred has changed in the last you know twenty years or so, and, yeah. and so for what Alfred was in the comic books at the time that this came out, Michael Goff was absolutely perfect for that role. Now, I still love Michael Caine as Alfred. I think yeah. he, he's a fantastic Alfred for the Dark Knight movies, but. For what Alfred was at the time, Michael Goff was absolutely perfect and does a great job. He's the you know the only continuing thread really through the four movies. Uh, well, and, and there's there is Commissioner Gordon. Well, there's Pat Hingle as Commissioner Gordon. Pat, Pat Hingle as Gordon. Yeah, no, I, I liked Hingle. I didn't. I mean, I like Pat Hingle as an actor, but I never liked him as Commissioner Gordon all that much, as opposed to Michael Goff, who just seemed perfect in the role, except for being Uncle Alfred. So, you know, we won't again, we won't go down that road. Yeah, um, that, God, that whole movie was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Suit me up, oh, Uncle Alfie. So, oh, so God. Bad. OK, so one of the things one of the things I noticed this time through is when you get to you have that altercation between Bruce and Selena where he takes off his mask and she essentially spurns him and rejects what he's proposing and then Batman slash Bruce becomes a passive observer for pretty much the rest of the movie. He's not actually involved in taking out any of the bad guys in this movie. And and you know what? That, to me, is fantastic movie making. Is that he, he has led everybody to this point. Like, you know, when he reroutes the penguins to come in and blow up the zoo. And, you know, the penguin falls down into the, you know, into the cave and stuff. And basically selena there and everything um before we get to that can i say that I've, I've said that i love this movie obviously many times that scene at the end between those two that might be like to me that's in the pantheon of men and women talking to each other like where he, where he talks and you know she she rips off her mask and everything obviously and and he talks to her and he's just saying like i i want you like i want like we're and he has that great line about where we're split right down the middle and she's I, i'm just getting like misty i thinking of this but like she <laughs> she so wants to be that and she even says she goes bruce there's nothing more i would love than you know go with you in your in your castle and all this and there's a great thing if you go rewatch the movie when she's doing that in that scene the thing that she's cracking her whip in the background i thought it was the electric wires at first and it's not it's like she she's constantly moving her whip and there's like these couple crack sounds in the background as she's kind of listening and then talking and i will tell you this it never gets any easier to see her spurn him it is mm -hmm. so tough like again it's not a romantic comedy i don't want it to be a romantic comedy but there is this moment where you're just like and this is where I don't understand where Ebert came from. 
they give you the moment where it's this great moment where he's not saying that he'll give up Batman, but he wants to consolidate his lives. Like, if you have to be Catwoman, I get that because I have to be Batman. But if we're going to do it, we have to do it together or else I can't be Batman. It, it, to me, I always took that from that moment. And he's asking, it's really like, you complete me. It really is. Like, you are the, you are the part of me that I'm missing and I need you. Right. And, and when she spurns him, like you said, he's basically not in the rest of the movie. <laughs> like, yeah. he doesn't really talk to anybody, you know, other than, I mean, there's a few throwaway lines, but yeah, she no, the- obviously kills Max. The penguin dies from his injuries and she goes on to live. But again, can you think of a movie where that can happen now? Like we kind of have to have the neat and tidy ending where like he somehow, you know, whatever, you know, he shoots the penguin or I mean, it's Batman. So he doesn't shoot anybody, but like he's, you know, he puts him in cuffs or commissioner Gordon comes storming through and they take the penguin away. Like there is this kind of great moment of finality for everybody where it's a downer for everybody. Like, the penguin dies because he grabs the wrong umbrella and Max dies because, well, he deserves to. Yes. And Selena doesn't really get any closure. Like she does. She kills Max, you know, say goodnight, Auntie Claus. Like, oh, it's such a great line. <laughs> and, but like, but she's gone and Bruce doesn't get her. Like it, it really is a movie that even though the bad guys lose and the good guy wins, it's really down. I mean, it's yeah. great because well, like, and, and, and actually that's where it ended that last shot where it goes up to the rooftops and, and Catwoman yeah. appears that was shot like two weeks before the movie was released. It cost like $250,000 to film and over a weekend. Pfeiffer. And yeah. it's not Michelle Pfeiffer. Like that wasn't <laughs> even in the original script. It was a, a last minute idea that they tacked on. Now I love it. And I uh-huh. love that they left the door open for her to come back. But it, it, you're right. I mean, the finality was she was gone and period. Yeah. And even then, like, that's her kitty that he picks up at the end. Right. I don't know if people got that. That's Miss Kitty. That's, you know, almost like I made it out OK. This is the sign that I made it out OK, because you're supposed to assume that he obviously didn't look up at the building he was driving away from and see her. And I love, like you said, the way that the silhouette and the music coming in the big, you oh, know, Danny Elfman score. Like, oh. Listen, Elfman in these two movies is, and when I say these two, the first two, oh, man, I love uh, John Williams. The, his his uh, scores like have changed my life. But man, Danny Elfman in the Batman movies, he was just, I mean, talk about just throwing 100 miles an hour. I didn't uh, think any movie was ever going to make me, like, would ever be able to replace that. And I will say Zimmer did a fantastic job with the score he created for Nolan's trilogy. But yeah. this is still iconic Batman to me. And and I think this is also the better of the two movies as far as the score goes. Oh, it is. Because I think it gives him a little bit more to play with, too. Because the first yeah. movie had a soundtrack with Prince. So there were songs kind of put in and, and where it replaced parts of the score and all that. Where this one, it was all score. Except, so, for, I, except for the one song by Susan the Banshees, which I had forgotten about. I absolutely loved Susie and the Banshees at the time that I saw this. So seeing their music in a mainstream movie just blew my freaking mind. <laughs> which, part, which part is that? It's at the masquerade and it plays again okay, at the end credits. Okay, but that's the one that they're doing. It it's the it is kind of like an orchestra that's playing. It sounds very Yeah. 
Uh, okay, that's okay. That's right. That's the only Elfman music that's not in the movie, or the non-Elfman music in the movie. But right. you're right, though. He's so so good. I mean, there's no disputing Elfman's fantastic. But you could say that these two movies, and maybe this movie, is his uh, crowning achievement because it's it, again, like him and Burton just have this great chemistry where they do stuff together. But yeah. He, again, like everything about this movie is fantastic. There's there's not a thing I would change. I, I do have a question for you, though, because we've kind of alluded to the second two movies after this. Yeah. Um, obviously, if people don't know, they wanted to bring back Burton. They wanted to bring back um, Keaton. Uh, Keaton, but they didn't want the movies to be dark. And Keaton toyed around with it for a minute, but said if Tim wasn't directing, then he wasn't doing it. Burton stayed on as a producer because even though it wasn't going to be his movie, he was still going to make money from it. So, like, he was smart. Would you have liked to have seen the trilogy of where this goes? Or are you okay leaving it at Batman Returns? Because the rumors were they wanted to introduce Robin in this movie. Uh, Dent was supposed to be Shrek. So you're going to introduce Two-Face into presumably the, you know, the finale of a trilogy. So do you wish that they would have went that route by introducing Dick Grayson slash Robin and Two-Face, or are you okay with the way it ended? I, I'm okay with the way it ended. Um, I, I Yeah, I mean, when I read about the, the whole Two-Face thing, that made a lot more sense than this random character, Max Shrek, which doesn't exist, you know, being inserted into a film. I, I liked that idea, and the idea that the end, instead of getting electrocuted, that's where he gets burned up and becomes Two-Face. You know, because we yeah. had had Billy D. Williams play Harvey Dent in the first movie, so that would have been him returning here. That would have given it another arc. You know, there's a part of me, yeah, sure, that'd be cool. I don't think we would have needed Robin personally, but again, that could have been cool. But mm -hmm. I'm happy with the film as it stands. I am too. I agree that, like, going back, it's always hard when you have these affinity for movies, and then you go back and you're like, well, no, I wouldn't change a thing about it. The problem that I have is, I don't know if Billy D. Williams in 92 holds as much <laughs> in as Billy D. Williams does in 89. Yeah. Like there's there, you kind of forget when you go watch the next one and Tommy Lee Jones plays Harvey Dent. You're like, wait a minute, Harvey Dent. And you're like, holy crap, that was Billy D. Williams back in 89. Like you almost forget that it's the same character. And actually, Billy D. Williams had to be bought out of his contract. Yes. For Tommy Lee Jones to be him because he was supposed to be for whatever movie they would do with the character of Harvey Dent, he had contract rights to. So they had to buy him out 96, 97? No, 95. Okay, not, so still, six years after originally doing Harvey Dent and not being in the second movie at all to bring back Billy Dee Williams, like you said, kind of would have been weird, but that whole movie is weird. So um, I, I agree with you, though. I, there is a small part of me, a tiny, tiny part of me, that would love if they did it now. And I know that's so cliche and I hate movies being remade. I would love to see Michael Keaton and Michelle Pfeiffer. And even if they're just bit players in it, see like a third movie just off that line. Yeah, I wouldn't <laughs> I, listen. I'm not saying I would go see it in the theaters. I'm just saying I'd at least want to read the script. Okay. I I'd okay. at least want to see what they come up with because I thought, the problem with the new Batman movies is quote unquote old Bruce Wayne, which is Ben Affleck, who I can't stand anyway, um, was terribly cast in it. But I think there's a really interesting way you can do old Bruce Wayne. And I didn't think Affleck was that bad. I don't think he really got the chance other than Batman versus Superman. I don't think he really got the chance to 
to do it. And, uh, you know, I don't yeah. know. All right, buddy, we've talked for a long time. Um, let's uh, put some closing credits on here. Uh, first up, we've got The Algorithm Says. This is a list of movies various algorithms say you will like because you liked Batman Returns. So this is kind of a lightning round of your reactions to these movies. You like them, you don't like them, you don't see how they're connected, which I could see in a couple of cases, that kind of thing, okay? Okay, I'm ready. All right, Superman. Well, yeah. Christopher, <laughs> Christopher Reeve. That, yes. I mean, that's, yes. Well, yeah. All right. Catwoman. <sighs> no. <laughs> no. I don't need to go any further. No. All right. Beetlejuice. Absolutely. Because Keaton, uh, that's that's a movie that, yeah. Yeah. That, that's, I... a, that's another one of those that I grew up watching way too many times and probably before I was old enough to. And it didn't matter. I love that movie. Yeah, I just showed my son the uh, Deo number from that like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> uh, Edward Scissorhands. Absolutely. Um, if Burton has an apex, I could actually argue more than the Batman movies, it might be Edward Scissorhands because that movie is before Johnny Depp gets to Johnny Deppish. And That's a good way has, of putting it. <laughs> it. It has almost a perfect cast. Um, with enough people you recognize and enough people you don't. But when you see them, you're like, oh, they were the neighbor in Edward Scissorhands. So, yes, absolutely. All right. Sleepy Hollow. <sighs> I love Sleepy Hollow. I have to admit, not... I have not seen Sleepy Hollow yet. Oh, my God. Oh, such a good movie. Uh, again, it's right when Depp starts to be Deppish. So it's really good. He's really good in it. But if you go look at his like filmography, this is kind of where it's like, oh, this is where it starts. So, uh, and again, brings back Christopher Walken. So, um, it's a really good movie. You should actually go watch it. Okay, Adam's Family Values. I thought you were gonna say the first one. No, um, it's the second one. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first one. It is a good movie, but if Roger Ebert would have said that Adam's Family Values was hokey and a little too colorful then he would have been correct um, <laughs> as opposed to the first. So I don't know if you like Batman Returns that it'll change your opinion on Adam's family values, but uh, I, I thought it was an okay movie. All right. Ghostbusters. I mean, it's it's on Mount Rushmore. So, I mean, like, if you, <laughs> it, like, if you don't like Ghostbusters, I don't want to be friends with you. So it's, I mean, yeah. But again, I'm not sure how they really connect um, other than a tad supernatural, but yeah, that's, this is the point where the list got weird for me. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a, like if somebody would say, "Oh, like if you like this, well, yeah, Sleepy Hollow makes sense. They're kind of both dark movies. They have different things. Ghostbusters isn't that to me." <laughs> yeah, uh, Gremlins. Oh, another movie set around Christmas, uh, which is oh, fantastic. there you go. Good point. I, listen, we should. Uh, I'm not going to invite myself back, but you should do a pod where you talk about movies that are set at Christmas time that are not Christmas movies. Uh, <laughs> Gremlins is one of them. Gremlins is a fantastic movie and a lot darker if you go back and rewatch. So I kind of see how it does that because there are some really serious, down and scary parts of it. But it is a fantastic movie, and I'd recommend it to anybody. Okay, Men in Black Three. What? <laughs> Men. Men in Black 3, you mean the one where they go back in time and stuff? Yep, 
Yep. Uh, sorry for anybody who's listening to spoilers. No, that's the plot device. Uh, There's no spoiling uh, that they yeah, go back in time. Uh, if you watch really? the trailer, it's got Josh <laughs> Brolin playing a young Tommy Lee Jones. No, but I'm not sure that many people watch the trailer, so it could be spoilers. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. No, no. Just no. All right, and lastly, who framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, recommendation of the movie, yes. Related to Batman Returns? No clue. <laughs> uh, not really sure what I I would love to to uh, interview the algorithm and figure out what the heck they were doing with that one. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Lastly, we always have our pop quiz for multiple choice questions related to the movie. Are you ready? I'm I've been studying very hard. All right. Number one, director Tim Burton was hesitant to cast Christopher Walken as Max Shrek, citing what reason? A, he didn't see the former Deer Hunter star as a businessman type. B, the two had had an unfortunate incident prior to Batman Returns. C, Burton admitted that Walken scared the hell out of him. Or D, Burton wanted to be the only freak in Gotham City. C, he was terrified of Walken. Yep, he admitted that Walken scared the hell out of him, but apparently worked well enough with him in this that he went on to recast him in um, Sleepy Hollow. Yeah. Oh, a little bit of trivia. Do you know who he actually wanted to play before Christopher Walken? I do, but I don't remember. David oh, uh, Bowie. David Bowie. Yes, David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. How how weird would that have been? <laughs> <laughs> uh, number two, Walken's frightful demeanor might be understandable when one looks behind the scenes to discover that, at his request, Max Shrek wears cufflinks made out of human molars, an idea Walken got from what novel? A, The Great Gatsby. B, Wuthering Heights, C, Invisible Man, or D, Frankenstein? A, The Great Gatsby, correct? Yep, it is absolutely from The Great Gatsby, and I can't believe he's wearing cufflinks made out of human molars. <laughs> Listen, if you're going to kill your business partner, it's probably Fred's molars in all honesty. It probably honesty. is! <laughs> I didn't even think about that. <laughs> All right. Three, due to the vacuum tightness of the costume and its various stages of disrepair throughout production, Michelle Pfeiffer went through how many Catwoman costumes at the cost of $1,000 a pop? A, 12, B, 25, C, 50, or D, 60? Was it 25? No, they went through 60. So wow. $60,000 of Catwoman costumes. <laughs> Oh, that's okay. It was well worth it. All right. And finally, number four, as you might expect, a full toy line was created based on Batman Returns, although several of the toys lost their connection to the movie between rewrites and test screening reactions. Which of the following was a real toy that made it to release? A, Danny DeVito's rendition of the Penguin. B, Super Muggle Max Shrek. C, Selena Kyle with Miss Kitty accessory. Or D, Robin Boy Wonder. I want to... I... I want to say that there was an actual penguin toy. I'm I, I'm pretty sure it's wrong, but I'm going to say the penguin. There was an actual penguin toy, but it was not based on Danny DeVito's. They based it on the comic book because they felt Danny DeVito's was too horrific for them to make a toy out of. They oh. did end up making a Danny DeVito one about five years ago. So you oh, have really? At, no, they uh, they released a Robin toy because he was in the original drafts of the script. Wow. Yeah. Spe speaking of toys. There's something that we didn't talk about that I want to talk about. And, and this is why when I talk about this movie, it makes me very angry. McDonald's had a tie-in promotion from the, with the movie that after the success of Batman at the time, McDonald's was doing a lot of tie-ins. If you remember when the Flintstones came out with the McRib 
the oh, yeah. uh, the toys and everything with if you could get a movie that was tied in with the McDonald's toy, you were guaranteed like eyes on the screens and people buying the toys. And through complaints of parents and McDonald's executives, they deemed the movie too dark. Yes, and and did not do the aforementioned tie-in with the toys, and that made me very angry as a ten-year-old because I <laughs> absolutely wanted to get the Batman Returns toys, whatever they would have been. Yeah, there's actually a, a a big kind of story about how this really severed ties for a little while between the studio and how McDonald's decided to become more selective about what what deals they made in the future because they had agreed to this and then they saw the script or a print or something and were like we can't make out a toy make a toy out of him <laughs> oozing black gook from his mouth kids won't want to see this and essentially what they admitted was Batman Returns is not made for young kids happy meals yeah. are so there was a misalignment there and that they've been cautious about ever since. I mean, which is smart, but, you know. Yeah. All right, man. Where can people find you? What do you want to promote? You said earlier about your podcast. Uh, now's your chance. Oh, well, we have the, a podcast that's called Out of Bounds. It, uh, we end it with a Z because we are a, a bunch of pretentious morons. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, we, we started it back in April, so we're very new. But I'll I tell you what, I could not have hooked up with better guys. And... Uh, we have a website that we're getting up and running called sidelinecoverage.com. Uh, we also have a Facebook page and a Facebook group, but definitely check us out on Out of Bounds. It's on all the uh, the podcast platforms. We've been so lucky. Just this past week, I went on your podcast and another one, and I will tell you this. The independent podcast community are the nicest people in the world. Rafe, I love your show. I love your movies. I, I go back half the movies I've never heard of. The other half I absolutely love, so it's a real dichotomy of like everything so you know thank you for having me on tonight oh. and uh keep doing what you're doing it's great thank you so much and i appreciate you coming on this has been a blast it was great to watch batman returns again and uh this has been a fantastic conversation so i really appreciate you coming on the show and uh we'll definitely send people over to check out your podcast as well so that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Batman Returns, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Town Hess, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S on Twitter and Letterboxd, or the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook, where at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or you can always email me at have not seen this at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's episode, which I don't have planned out yet, but it will be a great movie. Some really phenomenal movies coming up on the horizon. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is just sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Joe McDonald for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.